we had, my friends, a certain cliche of you students here, that mostly relatively well standing, in early years this was the rule, art curators who just wanted to get some stuff to bluff in their introductions, you know. I have such a bad experience with these art curators. I listened to one of them, I left in, in five, after five minutes, he said, we live in a post-Kantian universe, we live, and he didn't have an idea what is Kant and so on, you know. So it was that. And also, if I may put it like this, they didn't have a respect. I don't mean respect towards me. I mean, look at me, how can you, if you're not? <laughs> I mean uh, respect towards the autonomous logic of theory. Did you also have this experience? Is how I'm explaining Kant to them. Ethics. Oh my God, is this a bad sign? No. <laughs> and they, one guy told me, one of these curators, Kant is wrong. I did yesterday an ethical act. I didn't experience it like that. I'm like, yeah, fuck you, who cares? Who are you even? You know, experience for me doesn't count as. And this is my, I will go, don't be afraid, I will not lose my thread. This is also one of the problems in the bad version of Me Too and so on, a too direct reference to the experience. For example, I was one of those who argued, okay, it's horror, I agree, Weinstein and so on. But I still have some problems. Did, for example, C.K. Louis, the comedian, did he really deserve his entire career to be ruined? I don't think so. And the counter answer, some women started to shout at me in New York, was who, I am, to, who am I to judge them? This is how they experience. They can also, but my point is, are they aware that by reasoning like this, they are reproducing the worst Cartesian cliche against women? That we men can reason while women cannot move beyond their experience. You know, if a woman, then my second argument against experience is again, it's not a measure of justice. They say we, maybe a woman experiences this of, as utter violence. My answer is, okay, and maybe I am a racist, and if a black man comes too close to me, I am disgusted. And you tell me, okay, it's false, I tell them, fuck you, sorry, I experience. Experience is not, and that's also the lesson of psychoanalysis. As Freud said, except anxiety, all other emotions or whatever you call them, cheat, you know. So uh, I think that Okay, let me not get close. I will tell you to disappoint you what I plan to do today. Something extremely simple. I will keep my word, my promise already to students. You will get two very substantial philosophical texts tomorrow. To whom should I send them? Is it you? Nemanja, is it who? You. To whom should I send a text so that it reaches you all? You. Okay. And then you will be, fuck you, selling them around for 10 Swiss francs. Or, <laughs> okay, no, sorry. What I mean is that one that I appreciate very much, I think I did relatively great thing about, you know, all these paradoxes of place, 
twisted into itself. In mathematics, it's called unorientables. The basic simple one is Mebius strip, no? And then there are three. Uh, the most complex is Klein bottle. How, and I try to promote this as a ontological model, to cut the long story short. And I think you deserve this one. And what I promised you, one on what I missed on very simple introduction, philosophy today and sexual difference, but not sexual difference precisely. And here I must do publicity for my colleagues. Alenka did a book which is even doing very well. If some of you are from her class, you know, what is sex? It's, the thesis is very daring one. It's that we have, of course, this pre-modern, not even ontologies, uh, cosmologies, which are deeply sexualized. Usually the origin universe is some male principle is screwing some feminine principle, you know. Night, day, night, uh, spirit, earth, light, darkness, whatever. Now, modernity, the big event of modernity is to be the desexualized universe. Like, it's just this gray, boring, I think Pascal has this wonderful formula, this infinite, vast universe. Now, Lacan's paradox is that he reintroduces sexual difference, but I claim absolutely not in the sense of this ancient uh, resexualization and so on. And there is a guy here, you, I mean in a positive way, who I hope we will have to borrow time, who asked me precisely this question, which is central today. And it shouldn't be answered in an easy way. I will approach it towards the end of today's talk. I already improvised this in my class. Like, what's still the role of philosophy today? There are good reasons. Hawking, in philosophically very bad book, his one before the last, nonetheless makes an apparently convincing case. No? He says that, look, what were traditionally big metaphysical questions out of scope of science? Do we have free will? Is our universe finite or infinite? Science is dealing with this problem today. It's uh, neurology, cognitive sciences, which try to resolve this problem of free will. It's uh, quantum cosmology, which tries to decide is the universe finite or infinite and so on. So what remains of philosophy? His answer is nothing. Maybe just some kind of general methodological reflections and so on and so on. And I think this is maybe the big tension in modern contemporary philosophy. And I think that philosophers then try to isolate, or whatever you call it, a space which nonetheless remains to philosophy. The usual question, uh, reply is, he is today's, don't underestimate him, today's state philosopher. I don't agree with him, Habermas. His idea is a typical, very easy, transcendental terms. Science can explain everything, but it's this basic, reflexive, transcendental term, but it's nonetheless caught in a circle. I explain this as a natural process causality, but in advance, I already have to approach in this scientific way nature. It's not simply I look around and nature appears like this. Nature 
this is the classical Heideggerian point even. Nature has already to appear to me or to be conceived in this way to me. Like that nature is a causal link or whatever, even with all the further uh, complexities of quantum physics and so on. So the idea is that in order to explain everything, maybe even our brain, our mind through, you already, it must be always already here, a certain modern scientific rep uh, approach, not reproach, sorry, approach to nature. And this is then the hermeneutic question, no? Like, uh, uh, but I see problems here. This is the position that many people share, even if they appear to be opposed, from Heidegger to, uh, to uh, deconstructionists and so on. The idea is that you never get, as it were, an innocent view, innocent in the sense that not predetermined with our horizon of understanding of nature. But then the conclusion, and Heidegger was here truly radical, he systematically raised the question here. Uh, what am I saying here is, take somebody like Michel Foucault, whom I appreciate greatly. If, sorry if this will be repetitive to you, but uh, he, if you ask him, for example, do we have a free will? His answer would have been, his answer would have been to reject the question in this direct naivety. He would have said, it doesn't matter what answer you give to raise in its today's meaning this question, you already have to be within a certain episteme. Because in some other approaches to the world, such a question is meaningless. Or is thus natural is everything naturally determined by natural causality or is something that escapes natural causality? Uh, of course, answer would have been, this question itself presupposes a certain approach to reality, where reality appears to you as a nexus of causal uh, effects, chain of effect, causes and effects, and so on. So for him, this direct ontological question, if you then insist, but fuck you, but what about really? Are we free or not? He would have refused his, this question as too naive. For him, Germans, if you are some Germans here, have this beautiful phrase, I love it, unhintergeber, what you cannot step, move behind. That the further we can go is this, what Heidegger called, I'm oversimplifying here, Lichtung, op openness of being, the way things appear to us. And we cannot step out of it and ask, okay, but how things really are. Because precisely how things really are always appears within a certain horizon and so on and so on. So, uh, but Heidegger, not being an idiot, he, a couple of times very mysteriously, he raises the question, beginning in his wonderful, where he has all these thoughts about animal, lizard, stone, human beings. He says, but what about things, to put it naively, in themselves? In the naive sense of, of course, 
let's say a table, a stone appear to me in a certain way, always. Like, this is the great motif already of the early Heidegger. You know, this in der Welt sein, how I always, the way I perceive this table is overdetermined by my entire practical approach and so on. But the problem is, uh, but how are things really, if I drop that? Does this table simply continue and so on? And Heidegger said, and he repeats the same in one of his very last his conversation with Eugen Fink on Heraclitus. He has the same, says the same thing. He said, I totally neglected this. And what me, my Slovene gang, me, Mladen Alenka, are now obsessed with, literally, repeatedly approaching this. It's precisely how to approach this. Let's call it limit of the transcendental approach to move beyond, but without regressing into the old naive uh, realism. No. You cannot say, forget about ourselves, let's just look at things the way they really are. This is for me pre-Kantian, pre-critical naivety, we cannot do it. So if you are interested in this, I will definitely send you one text on this. And then, I'm sorry if you know this story, but most of you are new here. Let me amuse you before I go to my topic with another detail. Uh, story where I see here the interest of quantum physics. Why I again and again return to it, although, I mean, I don't understand it, but you know, all honest uh, uh, scientists in nuclear physics, you know, one of the most admitted, one of the most famous Feynman sayings is nobody understands quantum physics. It's just Mathematics works, you know. But uh, I'm sorry if you know this story, but it's beautiful. I think that the interest of quantum physics is to elaborate something, again, a strange connection, which, in a way, Heidegger, when he speaks about Verborgenheit, openness and how nature is hidden and so on, approaches in a different way, namely what fascinates me immensely in quantum physics is this idea of ontologically incomplete universe. And I try to elaborate consequences of it. What do I mean by this? Not the simple idea as it is usually misread that we cannot ever know nature fully. Every idiot knows this. Quantum physics is much more radical. Look at the, if you know a little bit, now I will give you a little bit of my bluffing, you know. Uh, uh, that's the difference between Heidenberg, the bad guy in this case, and Niels Bohr. Heisenberg uh, discovered, formulated the so-called uncertainty principle. You cannot measure the position and the movement of a particle, blah, blah. But there is a very interesting polemics here between Heisenberg and Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr reproached him that he is still too naive. Heisenberg basically reduces the uncertain principle to the limitation of our knowledge. It is, we cannot measure both. You have to choose. Either you measure the position or the movement, while Bohr's point is, and that's so thrilling, that no, in themselves, they don't have position and movement. You know, it's not our limitation. 
idee. Unfinished character and now of reality itself. And now comes my joke repeated 30 times if my, in my books. I hope you don't know it. The idea how to read this came, I forgot the name, to a vulgar, come on. But it's not, it's well written. Introduction to philosophy where, I forgot the name, sorry, it's quoted in my books, where the guy tries to explain this uncertainty principle, but correctly read through Niels Bohr, through a Video games, and I love video games. If you are a philosopher today, you should study video games. I will immediately tell you why. His idea is this one. You know that the uh, universe of video games, I'm talking about simple video games, you know, that um, I am too stupid to play them, too old, but I enjoy observing my son playing them. Uh, uh, the world there is not perfectly programmed. For example, in the back you see a forest, but it's not part of the game to go there. So it's meaningless to ask, oh, I want to see those uh, trees there in detail. It's not in the program. They exist only as this blurred, incomplete background. Or, most stupid example, the interior of a house. If in the game that you are playing, it's not part of the rules that you can enter the house. Then, of course, why lose time? The interior is not programmed, you know. It's meaningless. To, and the idea is this one, that, it's a beautiful one, that in creating our world, but you can give atheist reading to it, God was a lazy programmer. God underestimated us. He thought humans are too stupid to move beyond atoms. So why should I bother there with programming position and velocity? They will never reach that point. And we, as it were, caught God by his pants down, you know, as you say. We went too far. We approached this incompleteness of the universe. And I think this is something really worth thinking about. Because it's a, if we move beyond these jokes, it's a a very complex term, this idea of incomplete universe. You find this already in good historical hermeneutics, where, uh, you know, the first stupidity you should get rid of is this obsession with the original context. Here I like, but everybody likes him today, so I would... It's time that somebody begins to hate him, Walter Benjamin. When he says, he compared works of art with, you know, this is all that I'm quoted, with a shot on a film for which we don't yet possess the developer, how to make the image visible, so that he said, not only is later time, when you lose the immediate contact with a work of art, not only is it not, not underprivileged, like, you know, this historicist stupidity. You have to know all the context, the original context. No, I claim works of art in this sense are genuinely open. Maybe we can understand today some classical work, works of art much better than in their original time. My great example here is, of course, Think about Shakespeare. He has many of these open places, 
in the sense of not completely developed thoughts, which only today, with later development, we can fully understand them. So I think that not only are we, are we limited because we come late. No, we are, even, we are in a much better position. The original is necessarily stupid in this sense that they don't know what they are doing. It's only later, retroactively, that things become what they were. And this is not only the naive distinction between original and then later readings. The original is in itself ontologically incomplete and all that and so on and so on. And this opens up immense problems of uh, retroactivity. My favorite uh, saying from, I always like intelligent conservatives, you know T.S. Eliot in his, uh, uh, what is the title, his best known essay, Tradition and Individual Talent or what? He has this wonderful idea that the true revolution in the work of art not only opens up a new future, it's a radical cut, but changes the entire past. When you have a new invention, all the past appears in a new way. And this is the basic paradox of the new. How, uh, it's not only that it's new with regard to the past, it changes the entire picture. It changes also the past itself. For example, Heidegger would have permitted it. His, or even in a more vulgar slightly way, Adorno, Horkheimer, the dialectic of enlightenment, where basically it's a radical reductionist reading. They trace the origin of our technological nihilism basically not only to ancient Greek, but even to the most primitive tribal magic manipulation. They see already there the root of technological manipulation. I think they go a little bit too fast there. But what I think is that, in a way, uh, this is the true historicity, not reducing to historical context, but something much more radical. And I think we live in such a unique moment today. Things are changing, potentially at least, so radically. And now, I finally, I will try to go quickly through it. I will, would like to do something extremely stupid and naive. Just condense what I was writing about, because people ask me, but how can you be a Marxist? Isn't capitalism thriving everywhere or whatever? <coughs> and in a way, I agree with them. <clears throat> so I will try just to convince you, and I'm, saying, I'm not saying anything revolutionary here. I don't have a clear idea oh, about what we should do. What the hell do I know what we should do? The only thing I know, I hope you will agree with me, is that there is a certain Marxist eschatology that I think should be abandoned today. What do I mean by this? You know, Marx liked to complain about complain, describe the so-called alienation of history. History appears to us, individuals, as a process out of control. You do something with the best intention, what kind of a shit comes out of it, you get something totally different. But uh, the way I read it, Marxist, Marxist, of Marx, not Marxist, hypothesis was nonetheless that the revolutionary act is the unique act where you overcome this alienation. 
that, and this is developed in a top, at a top philosophical level with the young George Lukács, maybe the greatest Marxist of 20th century in his classical book, uh, History and Class Consciousness. How proletariat, working class, is the first subject object of history, where, to put it in simple terms, in a revolutionary act, proletariat does something and it knows perfectly what it does. Alienation is overcome. For reasons I don't want to go into, I think that if there is a lesson of the 20th century, it's that, no, it doesn't work this way. That the same, the same logic of alienation, you do something, it fails. You are surprised by the result. You have to do it again, and so on. If this is not a lesson of the 20th century communist attempts, then I don't know what it is. That the same impenetrability, the same unexpected result is everywhere. From Chinese revolution to already October revolution, go through them. So, uh, so like, what meaning does it have to still claim we need to step out of further of capitalism. First, at some level, I remain an admirer of capitalism, as Marx was, incidentally. Marx didn't simply hate capitalism. He was absolutely fascinated by capitalism. Marx saw very clearly that capitalism was a uniquely dynamic order where crisis was its normal state. It thrives through crisis. And you can locate this in a very comical detail. How, you know, already Marx was saying, late Marx, with new imperialist dynamics, uh, capitalism is approaching its final state. Then Lenin came and said, imperialism is the last stage of capitalism. Then Mao came, like, the more capitalism is rotting and it goes from one to another last stage and the better it is doing, you know. This is quite unique of capitalism. How, what for other regimes was a catastrophe, like permanent imbalance. It's the very water in which capitalism swims. Also, what is very important today to insist against, I claim, false multiculturalist uh, ideas is that horrible as capitalism is, Precisely by, as Marx describes already in Communist Manifesto, precisely by, you know, ruining all ancient traditions, hierarchies, values, and so on, it creates the space for freedom. We have to go through this, and in a totally different way. He's not talking about capitalism. Even Heidegger makes this clear. Technology is not just modern technology, a deviation which, no. We have to go through it to reach a new beginning. So the first even political consequence is don't fall into this cheap idea of local ancient cultures as sites of resistance towards capitalism, global capitalism. No, they fit perfectly, global capitalism. But let me uh, now begin properly. So I will try, I'm sorry to be boring for you, to address an extremely simple question. Are there limits to capitalism? Or to put it in traditional terms, are we today confronting 
antagonisms for which it is, I will be very modest, reasonable to conclude that in the long term, capitalism will not be able to deal with them. And, uh, uh, okay, here the situation is very complex. Permit me to quote, repeat for the 20th time an old joke that I use all the time, but uh, uh, I will give a different twist to it. You know, I love those Soviet-era political jokes. And one that I use all the time applying is that joke about, you know, Rabinovich, the Russian Jew, figure of jokes. Rabinovich, uh, the, the, they... Ask Radio Erevan, this legendary mythical Soviet radio station, which is the butt of Soviet anti-communist popular jokes. The, whatever you ask this station, the answer begins with, in principle, yes, but. So they ask Radio Erevan, is it true that Rabinovich won a new car on lottery? And the answer of Radio Erevin is, in principle, it's true, only it wasn't a new car, but an old bicycle, and he didn't win it, but it was stolen from him, you know. <laughs> and I think if we ask Radio Erevan, uh, is capitalism still thriving today? We would have gotten a similar answer. In principle, yes. And I know, you know, that there is today a whole trend of new optimists, Steven Pinker, Jordan Peterson, Tim Harris, who uh, repeat this line again and again. And one should listen to them when they refer to data. It's interesting how, listen, we complain all the time, wars here, but do you know that never in the history of humanity were relatively so little wars than today for the first time in the entire history of humanity? Obesity is a greater problem than hunger, and so on. So there are good reasons for. But nonetheless, why then all the rage against capitalism? Why this almost panic? Why? And this is a very interesting phenomenon. Even big names like, uh, I quoted in my class, like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, all of a sudden, they are all saying, capitalism cannot survive, we need some kind of socialism. Where does this, the, the, usually the reason they give is ecology, you know? The idea is this one. It's a quite consistent, nice one, that capitalism thrives as long as you have a natural, this impenetrable natural background on which you can rely that it will somehow equalize the things. Like, we will, we can, uh, we can, uh, we can uh, spoil, ruin, uh, poison nature as much as we want, but we can rely on mother nature, somehow the balance will be re-established. The problem is, can we still do this? And I think quite reasonably they argue we cannot. And they are also aware, and it's very sad that if all the surviving Marxists, it's up to them to point out this, that, okay, there is, in a limited amount, there is also capitalism which can help us here through taxation and so on to regulate. But I think the challenges are simply too strong. My eternal example, look at, you remember, now it must be already six, seven years ago, Fukushima, the catastrophe. My friend Jean-Pierre Dupuy, a great 
Maybe you should invite him if you get him here. Theorist of catastrophes. Uh, was in Fukushima as special envoy of European Union immediately. Still in the midst of a catastrophe. And he told me, do you know that for a couple of hours, Japanese government thought that the pollution will be so strong that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area, 30 millions. Like, sorry, capital doesn't work here. You cannot say, okay, let's put this on the market, which country will tell them. We don't have time for that. We absolutely need some new type of, let's call it, a uh, 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 new type of uh, collective act. So, what to do in this contradiction? A German sociologist and leftist economist, Wolfgang Streeck, wrote now a bestseller. You may not agree with all of it, but he makes a very nice point. He said that our era is unique in the sense of till now, when there was a crisis of capitalism, it was always experienced as an opportunity for the left. There was some kind of a less or more radical left waiting them. Perfect, we have a plan how to move it to a higher stage. Now we have something very sad. Capitalism is just disintegrating. And I'm sorry to tell you, I'm still a communist. I don't see any consistent leftist project what to do economically. Do we have an alternative model? That's why I think left is getting so politically correct, this time in the bad sense of moralism. You know, you, this is one big lesson of politics. When progressive politics gets moralized, protesting about whatever, it usually means they don't have an alternative global vision. And uh, so, uh, so this is, I think, what, what makes it so problematic. But there are, I think, to begin the analysis, to see clearly the limitation, maybe, is to refer to, I always like this mixture of ideology, popular ideology, even popular theology, and economy. Did you notice how the motive which I like uh, this theological motive, which is now very popular among American Christian fundamentalists, of those left behind. The idea is there will be soon a rapture. All those really close to God will be taken up to Christ, and we others will have to fight Armageddon. No? And you know, I love this apparently meaningless debate. Then I learned that there are four or five different schools fighting with each other. You have, you have uh, the name theological for Armageddonic tribulation, the horrible time, Antichrist, and so on. Uh, uh, the, uh, there is a minority, but still the strongest, of so-called pre-tribulation rapture. They claim that rapture will occur now, anytime, and then there will be the big catastrophe which will end by second coming on the Christ. Okay, at the end, good forces will win, but there will be a horrible catastrophe. Hundreds of millions at least will die. And then you have the, uh, the post 
tribulation rapture people who claim, no, there will be first tribulation, we will all suffer. There is no easy way out. Like, if you are faithful to God, oh, you will go to God before. Why do I find this debate interesting politically? It's not as stupid as you may expect. Uh, because uh, uh, the, uh, the, this, the uh, post-tribulation rapture people point out quite correctly that the, those who think uh, rapture, usually they talk about 5-10% people disappearing. Did you see any movies? They are lower trash movies and novels. You know Tim Lahai? You know his series, Left Behind? You should read it. It's the lowest of the lowest. <laughs> and then there is a more intelligent one. Did you see the TV series, Leftovers, which deals precisely like 5% of world population disappears? Nobody knows why and how others deal with it, but the idea is this one, that instead of preparing you for the fight, pre-tribulation rupture people basically tell you if you are faithful to Christ, don't worry, you have to fight, you will be saved, taken up. Now, and they say, no, we should fight, we could control. But I, for political reasons, although I'm of course an atheist, I prefer the nonetheless the pre-tribulation rapture people. Because you know in tribulation there will be a fight between forces of antichrist and followers of Christ, but those who were not faithful enough to be raptured. You know, they had their doubts and so on. <laughs> and isn't there a wonderful lesson if you are for pre-tribulation rapture that those people who are really faithful to Christ are useless. They, they will not participate in the struggle. And this is the deep insight of truly great theologies. Kierkegaard says, if you don't doubt God all the time, you are not a true Christian, and so on. You know that, in a way, the big battle against Antichrist will be won not by the truly faithful. They are meek, compromised idiots. They go up before. <laughs> It's by us who doubt, maybe who are even atheists, who will do the fighting. So, uh, but what interests me in this idea of left behind is, <coughs> sorry, why is this team so popular? I'm tempted to offer a very vulgar materialist Marxist, but vulgar, but I think it hits a point reading that as usual, God is listening to economy, you know. The, isn't the topic of left behind the big, maybe fundamental, geopolitical and economic fact today? As my good friend, a conservative but intelligent one, uh, uh, Peter Sloterdijk said, global capitalism is like a cupola. We, the privileged, are inside. It's like... 75 to 25, approximately. One quarter of humanity lives in relative welfare, and we are not, although we see the outside, but we are, in a way, derealizing it. And those are quite literally left behind. And there is a tendency in capitalism to produce more and more of those who are simply left behind. 
left out. And here it's crucial how we react. Now I will say to provoke you something which caused me a lot of political troubles, but I stick to it. The problem of refugees in Europe. What, what do I find problematic in this moral view? Refugees are coming. Are we human or not? Will we open our borders? No, I think I distrust this change of a, this tra subtle transformation of a key geopolitical economic problem into a humanitarian question. First, I think, uh, I think that refugees who are coming are not simply, I think always that the true tragedy, the truly left behind are those who remain there. We are all talking about carrying their children in North Africa or whatever. What about those who are left behind? And we tend to forget that and change it into, and what we, into our humanitarian problem. We should ask ourselves, how are we complicit in creating the situation there that makes them escape? For example, to be very blunt, I have, believe me, no sympathy for Saddam Hussein. I'm not crazy. But isn't this a model, or, I mean, without American invasion of Iraq, without uh, the West uh, 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 toppling Gaddafi, without Syrian war, which incidentally it's purely a proxy war for big powers, mid-level big powers around it, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and through them, United States, Europe, Russia, and so on. Uh, look, uh, even those who, Syrian friends told me, even those who started the resistance against Assad, which was later taken over by ISIS and fundamentalists, they are now on the side of Assad, almost, almost. They say, my God, what we produced is worse. So, and with Saddam, it's the same. He was a nightmare. But you know that this is so sad. Do you know that Iraq and Syria were, I don't know if they still are, the only two Middle East Muslim regimes, Muslim in the sense that population is majority Muslim, which were not formally Islamic states. They were secular states. Do you remember his, how that, how is it called, Tariq Aziz or who? Saddam's foreign minister. He was a Christian and so on. Saddam, only at the end, to get support against Iran, started to flirt with Islamism. He was always a nationalist patriot, and so on. So the justification of the invasion of Iraq, incidentally, Saddam was a nightmare. I know details from some journalists of his techniques of torture, better not to mention that. But there are two facts. He did quite a lot with his relatively secular regime for emancipation of women. Women has all the access to public posts and so on and so on. And point two, he was not religiously fanatic. You have there two millions, I don't know how much, Christians living peacefully. Now, the main result of occupation of Iraq, there are three main results. A, women are much more oppressed now under Islamic fundamentalist pressure. Point two, the majority of Christians already left the country, and I love this. United States intervenes, why? To help 
cleanse the country of the Christians. And third point, if anything, Iran is now a key player in Iraqi politics. You see, this is a model of how not to do things. It's the same with Libya. I remember when he was already using, losing, sorry, in an interview, Gaddafi said, are you aware what you are doing? I made a pact with you. He was even, as you probably know, doing dirty things for the West. He was receiving rendition uh, prisoners to be tortured for the West and so on, you know. And, uh, as they say, my friend, uh, you know, it's not only outsourcing for cheap labor. Uh, labor. What the West invented is outsourcing of torture always. You know, it's too dirty for us. So we. So what I am saying is that the same is happening now, not only in Syria, but for example, remember, Yemen. It's indescribable what is happening there now. The, there is mass starvation. The whole country is being ruined and so on. It's indescribable. One can see. And where are we now? Are we really waiting again for humanitarian problems, flow of immigrants? I think that, uh, I think that uh, uh, the big temptation here of some of my leftist friends, that I don't agree with them, is false romanticization celebration of immigrants. Like here I slightly disagree with my friend Alain Badiou, who coined the term nomadic proletarians, you know, like. But behind this, I think there is a terribly weird vision. A friend of mine from Finland wrote me an email, and then he was so mad at me that we stopped all communication, where uh, he said, now, finally, he said the problem in Europe is we are too corrupted, there is no revolutionary force. Now, with immigrants, we are you know what this means? They even want to outsource revolutionary force. Like, we have a good revolutionary theory, we don't have revolutionary subjects, let's import one. <laughs> it's totally wrong perspective. Refugees are not coming here as the revolutionary force, and incidentally, I understand that. They just want to become normal proletarians, you know. They're searching for a job, and so on, and so on. But what I'm saying is that uh, this operation of changing the problem of refugees into a humanitarian problem, you know why it's horrible? Because you should always bear in mind the class dimension. I think this is manipulated by those in power who, you know, when you are rich, you are always humanitarian. You always suffer with. I know this from my own experience. When I'm lucky for long flights to get a business or ones through upgrading even first class, and I'm immediately boarded, check in. You cannot imagine with what sincere compassion I looked at those long queues of economy class people. Ha <laughs> <laughs> fuck you, because I am not there, you know, like. And it's the same with this sympathy. And you know, the biggest success of those in power is that who, and again, I don't blame them. They feel this as a problem, immigrants stealing their job and so on. They triggered a conflict between two lower classes, immigrants and local poor. And it's a wonderful opportunity for them to play big, you, you, you know, in the United States, this is always, even with many feminists, the strategy, this hidden class dimension. You know, like, 
They don't like to say it officially, they claim we are always against racism. But if you speak with many American feminists, it's always in a coded way indicated that Mexicans or the poor redneck working class, they are really the ones who beat their wives, who I don't know, and so on and so on. So let me tell you a story which uh, Alenka told it to me. I, I don't think she used her it in her classes. I will, you know what, I will, I, okay, I will do something totally crazy because I have the text. Sorry if I get lost in this. What if I sent you also the text of what I wanted to deal with today? You know, <laughs> it's madness, I know, you know, it's madness, but no, no, uh, I want to trigger your reaction to this. She told me the story, Alenka. There was a crazy political incident recently, I forgot where, she knows, in some American campus. The problem was this one. There was one of the rich universities with a swimming pool, and some student girls were bathing there, laying in sun in their bikinis, and a house, four or five stores close to it, has all those, how do you call it, when you are restoring the facade. And there were some, of course, Mexican illegal workers there. And of course, I'm not, I don't agree with it, I am a feminist, but of course in the sense that it's not unexpected that the workers tried to address to the girls what I think, at least in Argentina, they call piropo, el piropo, these sexist remarks. The girls protested, and then, you know how, this is for me almost a caricature, the worst of political correctness. You know how university solved it? The date established a plastic wall separating the house from the swimming pool so that it was invisible, plus they built a kind of a plastic-covered tunnel to prevent any chance of the poor workers seeing the girls. So everybody was satisfied and so on and so on. This is political correctness for me. But don't misunderstand me here. This is a deadlock situation because what does it work? In a certain way, if you are a sensitive feminist, the girls were right. You know, they were harassed. On the other hand, the laborers immediately said which was probably also at least partially true, that it's a class dimension. It was rich girls horrified at the <coughs> piropo jokes, advances from the poor workers. And as one of the workers said, if instead of being a working plateau, this were to be a balcony of a rich boys club, I wonder if the girls would protest in the same way. So what's the solution? I think that precisely there is no direct solution. In the short term, we maybe should say, okay, girls, we should protect them, but we should be aware that there is also a class injustice in it. So, you know, uh, the problem with, this is for me the problem of political correctness. It doesn't solve the problem through all those ridiculous plastic walls and so on. That's what political correctness is doing. You don't solve the problem, but okay. Let's not lose time. Let me go on very quickly. My God, I'm afraid even to look at it where I am now. Uh, time. Okay. 
I will go quickly through the four points where I see the limit of capitalism today. First, the commons of culture. I will just repeat my old Marxist way. I think that the problems that we usually refer to as intellectual property, they clearly point to the limit of capitalism, at least. First, on the one hand, there is a lot of stealing, although I'm for it. I mean, if you were to check my PC, the most widely used website is Pirate Bay, of course, you know. But what I'm saying is, on the other hand, we get this phenomenon. Did you ask yourself why all these new corporate guys uh, like uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, uh, Bill Gates, and so on, are the wealthiest men today? Where does their money come from? It's not classic profit and exploitation. It's ridiculous to say that Bill Gates is extra exploiting his workers. I think it's a totally different phenomenon, what I call the privatization of commons. All these new mega capitalists, they privatize something that should be our commons. Like Bill Gates owns the very tech digital, not digital, software, texture of our communication. Most of us, if I email to you, I use Microsoft, whatever, and so on. So I agree with those Marxist economists who claim we are witnessing today a weird return from profit to rent. I think the source of the wealth of Bill Gates is we are all paying rent to him. Rent which enables us to participate in our commons. Bill Gates is here when, when I will send you the email and so on and so on. It's rent. And this clearly introduces some kind of irrationality in the sense that even what under normal, under quotation marks, capitalism, we should, could consider as rational, it's now getting totally crazy. If a guy with an invention in his garage can become in one decade or two the wealthiest man in the world, it simply means the system no longer functions. With, oh, okay, I will not go into it in detail. This, I think, is the first uh, limit of capitalism. It will, and also then finances and so on. Then, the commons of external nature, simply ecology. I think that there also we are approaching a limit. You all heard about Anthropocene, no? Like the new age where we humanity are a geological factor. What's so interesting about it is the fundamental paradox. Insofar as, as already said, nature is a impenetrable background and you can rely on it. We can screw it up, but nature will somehow reasonably balance. We were able to be subjects in the sense of exploiting ruthlessly nature. Precisely we, because we became too powerful, we humanity all of a sudden discovered our limit. And here also, I don't want to lose too much time, here also Alenka Zubancic, who again, I prohibited her from being here, uh, uh, made a wonderful variation of, you know Freud's term, unbehagen in der Kultur, the discontent, it's not a good translation. The translation English, 
this civilization and its discontent, it's totally wrong. Because Unbehagen is not discontent, it's more being out of place, uneasiness. You don't feel in that today with this Anthropocene, it's not just Unbehagen in their culture, or it's Unbehagen in their nature also. You know, like nature itself is more and more denaturalized. We are discovering how nature itself is not natural. If by natural we mean this regular rhythm, seasons, summers, and so on. And uh, here I'm a good multiculturalist in the sense of, you know who has maybe the best novel on this? I quote it in my last book, Incontinence of the Void. I forgot the name, sorry, my racism, but there is a Chinese science fiction author. I draw your attention. Yeah, the, the, the how do you call it, the three-body problem. And it's precisely this wonderful idea, us and this other planet, with three suns where nature is denaturalized and so on. So uh, here also, I already mentioned the example of Fukushima. Uh, capitalism can be useful, but we will need another approach. The, uh, I think that we will have to regulate, subordinate whatever capitalism. Next threat, in the sense of antagonism, which I think it will not be able for capitalism, capitalism will not be capable of uh, coming to terms to cope with it, is, uh, of course, uh, uh, the commons of our internal nature, cognitive sciences, biogenetics, and so on and so on. Are we aware what is already happening there? People usually focus too much on this, how we are digitally controlled and so on. And I boast now, ironically, you know that three days ago I was in a rich bank and fuck you, they treated me much better than you. A big Mercedes limousine was waiting at me at the airport taking me to Gestadt, from Gestadt, a big Mercedes took me here, and when I leave today for now, fuck you, I will have to travel with that yellow post bus. <laughs> no, no, sorry, let me be serious. I went there simply to earn some money, which I promise you I will spend it to travel around, to visit friends, and so on. <coughs> I mean, for a good cause, political and so on. But there are some interesting references there. Two guys, one lady, one man, uh, reported on what is already happening. And it's, okay, this is the usual story, Cambridge Analytica story. But it's much more radical already and developed. So it's true that, you know, the problem is not only that we are controlled in the sense of what am I thinking. The problem is that they are gathering data about us that we don't even know what these data are. For example, I will not lose your time, precious time, but just to show you how serious the thing is. Chinese, and when they say Chinese develop this, I always suspect that Chinese are a comfortable example. They are there, you know, to distract the attention that we are probably doing the same thing. Chinese already developed such an elaborate satellite strategy that you can cover an entire 60,000 people stadium and you get data about every individual. 
How excited is he? In this way, this is supposed to be the triumph. They only knew that, isn't this terrifying, that there is a mass murderer on a stadium. And they discovered it through this. They scanned the whole stadium, and each person was, they somehow measured the intensity of your excitement, whatever. They caught him in this way. Second thing, as a British lady of Swedish origins, Pippa something, I don't know the name, who is also a specialist in this, told us, are you aware and that practically all of the computers and especially flat, flat, uh, flat big screen TVs that you use today, they also have a camera you are watched, and this camera doesn't only register did you watch hardcore pornography or whatever? What do you watch? No, they measure the intent. They have basic algorithms. How did you react? Passionately or not? And so on and so on. And with today's mega computers, you simply have, they have enough computing powers to use all this. We all already have, and this lady gave another wonderful example. Do you know that the sneakers, I don't have them here. This was uh, imposed on me by my wife. <laughs> the sneakers have a tiny chip already in them which reports how much do you walk, with what intensity do you walk, and so on and so on. Okay, this is the big news, but I'm not so much afraid of it. I'm, I'm sorry if it will be a road story for you, but it fascinates me. I'm much more afraid of something else. <laughs> Namely, the, uh, this idea, I developed it already here, I think, years ago, of a direct link between our brain and computers. It already, it's progressing like crazy. You know, the, look, to begin with my usual example, you know that Stephen King, sorry, Stephen uh, Hawking, I prefer Stephen King. <laughs> you know, he usually communicated for long years in his wheelchair by he was able to move a little bit one finger, no? In the last years, he no longer needed it. His brain was directly wired, so for example, he just thought intensely, move, and his wheelchair moved. This is almost what in German idealism they called intellectuelle Anschauung, where perception and activity coincide. This is divine in the sense of you think about something and it happens. Okay, the bad news is, of course, that if it goes out, it goes also in. In what way, what, and this is the new military tactic now. I was told by my friends, US Army, Chinese Army, Russian Army, they invest like crazy in this. How to, how to read your mind. It's all still primitive, but it's progressing tremendously. And now, I hope you don't know it, to give you my final example here of this. Uh, do you know that they already did now, it's very primitive, but it's terrifying for me. They succeeded it first with rats, and from my connections I learned they also are doing it discreetly, just you don't read it in the media with humans. I, I was shown, uh, a video of a rat running around freely in a cage, and, but uh, the nerves of the rat were linked to a computer 
because they broke the code, a very simple one, of directions, run this left, right. So it's terrifying. The rat is running around. Then you press a button, a living rat becomes a remote-controlled car. You can direct her. And as it was hinted at me, that's the beauty. Uh, they did this discreetly on humans. They can do it. And they ask the right, almost, okay, not philosophical, but in that direction question, how w will a human being experience this? Will it be, oh my God, let's example, let's see that I am that human rat. I walk here around, let's say you, I give this honor to you, you press a button, you direct me. How would I experience, will I experience it? The result is very sad. It's not that I will feel, oh my God, a foreign power took over. No, I would still think that I'm free. That I'm freely moving around and so on. So uh, I think, although I'm against these new age dreams and so on, that uh, the way these things are developing, something new. I don't like to call it post-human, because post-human brings Ray Kurzweil and all those Id new age idiots, you know, we are entering a new era, singularity, one collective mind. But definitely something which no longer fits our definition of being a human being. Because being a human being for us means this basic difference. I'm here, reality is there, this minimal distance. I think I don't act. And this is clearly threatened. I'm not here a pessimist. I'm not saying the, the result will be this. I share neither the crazy optimism of people like Ray Kurzweil and so on, happy new, new, new singularity and so on. They cheat, I think. When they paint this new collective mind, they still write and talk as if somehow we will maintain, we will be the same singular individuals. But on the other hand, I also don't share the simple uh, technological pessimism, horrible, we will be robots. I just insist that, and with this I will conclude, that we don't know what will be the result. I want to keep it totally open. You know, because, you know, and here I will be now even critical of Marx. Uh, you know what is the usual temptation in these situations? Heidegger knew this very well and many others. We have dreams of immortality and so on, eternity. But they are all dreams from the standpoint of our finitude. Uh, and uh, you cannot, we cheat. The way we imagine immortality, it is meaningful only from our temporality and finitude. And so the trap of some of these utopians is to Imagine post-human subject, if we still can use these terms, as precisely from the dream of our limited humanity, as if we will get that, but we will not. And where is here critique of Marx? I try to develop somewhere that there is maybe a similar flaw in Marx's approach to communism. Very intelligent critics showed that Marxist idea was this one. If you have an incredible dynamic, I simplify it, of capitalism. But then at a certain point, capitalism became obstacle to its own dynamics. So 
you whatever socialized means of production, and you get wild expansion outside capitalism. I don't think it works. I think that the very obstacle to expansion, capitalism, is its positive condition. If you take Marx's dream is to get capitalism without its symptom, as it were, as if somehow, I don't know why, in communism, this crazy dynamics, always further surplus, permanent imbalance, which is, I think, clearly specific of capitalism, will simply survive in its unconstrained, pure form. And it's the same problem with this post-humanity. We don't know what, and as it's clear, now, I covered briefly these four domains. Yes, the fourth is, of course, what I began with. Those left behind, new walls, new apartheid, and so on. I think our tragedy today is that we can clearly see, that's what even people like Bill Gates and Truman see, that capitalism, at least as we know it today, will not be able to cope with it. Or if it will be able, it will be a catastrophe. Can you imagine all this tremendous thing of digital control wiring our brains to be left to private companies? Now they will say, but we need state control. Yes, but as we learned already now. Here, in spite of his problematic acts, I agree with Julian Assange, who wrote a wonderful book, totally ignored, on Google, where he shows that Google is basically a private counterpoint to NSA. These big corporations are all intensely linked with state apparatus and so on. So again, we have to break out of capitalism here with biogenetic manipulations. Again, it's nightmare if we leave it to free capital with ecology. I don't think you can cope with it in capitalism, and so on, with capitalism, and so on, and so on. So, uh, but then, what to do? Well, here I will disappoint you, to conclude really now. Uh, I will, all I can tell you is to repeat an old joke that I'm sure most of you heard, if not from me, from others, but I think it's more than appropriate here, you know? That eternal joke of mine, against Lenin. There are so many beautiful jokes in Soviet tradition about Lenin. Like my favorite, it's still the old one used in my early book. I think whenever I have to explain the, the reflexive signifier as the signifier of a lack and so on, I always use that. I'm sorry if you already heard it even from me in my class. You know that wonderful joke on, in Soviet Union they have an exhibition of painting and there is a painting titled Lenin in Warsaw. And on the painting, you see Lenin's wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, widely fucking a young Komsomol guy. And the visitor asked, okay, but why this title? Where is Lenin? And the guy said, hey, Lenin is in Warsaw, you know. That's why <laughs> she's doing this here. This is what Lacan means by Vorstellung, Repräsentant. Something is the title doesn't name the content of the image, but that which has to be excluded so that you can get that content. Okay. My final jokes, you know it even more. You know this eternal, you have to know this. I think I even used it here already in public classes. When I was young even in communist countries, we all had as an instigation to us, pupils, this 
words of learning advice to young people. What should you do? Learn, utsitsa, utsitsa, utsitsa. Learn, learn, and learn. So, you probably know the joke, typical communist. Uh, they ask Marx, Engels, and Lenin, what do we prefer, to have a, a wife or a mistress? Marx, more conservative, morally, says a wife. Lenin, sorry, Engels, more a bon vivant, said mistress. Lenin says, I want both. <laughs> so they are shocked. Lenin is supposed to be ascetic revolutionary. What is this? So they ask him, surprised, but why, comrade Lenin? What would you do then? And Lenin answers, well, so that I can tell my wife the time with the mistress, I can, I can tell the mistress the time with my wife. And they ask him, okay, but what do you do then? And he says, of course, learn, learn, and learn. That's what we need today. If wife stands for the traditional order, trust in capitalism, it will not work. So tell your wife that you are, tell capitalists that you are with, uh, that you are with critics, dissidents. Dissidents today don't really know. We don't have a vision. So tell them you are with capitalists. And Learn, learn, and learn. We live in an epoch when new things are happening. Like, what will be this post-human subjectivity? We don't know. Even what is happening socially? Is today's China still capitalist? In what sense? We don't know. So that's why I'm not here just kissing your ass, but I mean it sincerely. That's why our institutions like EGS here are so precious, because our academia is more and more, that's the catastrophe of what in Europe we call Bologna reform, streamlined, directed in the sense of it must be of some social use to solve real, no, true intellectuals don't solve problems, they raise the right questions, they, the first critical gesture is when society wants from you solve this problem. Like typically, we have fundamentalist demonstrations, whatever, help us, how to, no. We should first ask, is this the right problem? Why this problem? And so on. And for this, unfortunately, there is less and less space in our official academia. And it comes often to the types of institutions like here, which are the, the only space where you can still raise this type of questions, obviously. So that's my final message. Learn, now I will be very cynical. I go to my mistress and you fuck you, learn, learn, and learn. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.